to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Next week, Lance Calvert from Farmington is going to come down and teach in my stead since uh, it will be Fall Festival weekend and my wife will be out of town. And so rather than try to juggle too much at once, I decided, you know what? I'm going to take a break and let one of my brothers in the faith teach. So he's going to come down and uh, teach 1 Corinthians 5, which is totally fine with me because it's all about sexual sin and I don't really want to teach that anyway. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, 1 Corinthians 5. But this week we're going to finish up 1 Corinthians 4. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Paul's writing because there's been some misunderstandings. Number one, they've misunderstood the gospel. They've misunderstood the message that he came and proclaimed for 18 months. He spoke to them for 18 months. He was with them. He ministered to them. And yet there's still a lot of misunderstandings. And so Paul is writing this letter to correct those misunderstandings. And even in some cases where people are not willing to be corrected, he's rebuking them. He's saying, you're wrong and you need to change. And Paul loves them enough to tell them when they're wrong and that they need to change. And then the next thing is the next misunderstanding is, is that um, the ministers, the messengers have been misunderstood. Uh, in many ways, uh, they understood the messengers as these people that, you know, they should collect their baseball cards. You know, they need to look up to them in a way where they, they start pitting each minister against one another. They, they go, well, Paul's this good because of this, and I don't really like Apollos because he does this thing. But what he's going to tell them, and what he told them last week, is you're, you're not looking at us the right way. Ministers of God, pastors, leaders in the church are not, you know, don't think of them too lowly because God has given them authority to teach the word. He's gifted them in that way. And you are to look at that authority with, with reverence. But the other side of it is you're not to hold them to such a high standard that you think that they're actually God himself. And so because they had a wrong idea and they had a wrong priority, they had them misplaced. They, they were putting their faith in these ministers rather than in Jesus Christ himself. And so he, he basically says, hey, look, here's what a minister is. We're first and foremost servants of Jesus Christ. We're under oarsmen. We're people that are rowing on the ship and we're only doing what our commander tells us to do, the captain of the ship. If he says row on the right, we're going to row on the right. If he says row on the left, we're going to row on the left. We're, all, we're only submitted to his authority. But then he also says we're also stewards. And we don't think about this. Maybe we think about it with airplanes. A steward is someone who has a bunch of stuff in the back or the front of the plane. And then as they hand out, you know, whether it's the peanuts or the popcorn, but they've been given allotment of supplies to feed and water and give drinks to the people on the plane. And in the same way, uh, a head of a household is that way. They, they go and either earn the money, that's what I do, and then Kelly, she takes the money and she uses it for the things that we need and spreads it out in the places that it needs to be so it can be most effective. And so in a way, we together are a steward over our home. Everything that we receive, money from my job, is only because the Lord gives it to us. And so we use it, we're stewards of that money. It's not our money, it's just something God's given us to use. So in the same way, Paul, Apollos, and some of the other teachers, they're stewards of the money that comes into the church. They're stewards of the people that God brings into the church. But they're also stewards of the mysteries of God. The things that they've dug into in the word 
They've, they've gathered them together during the week or whenever they studied. They put them in a treasury and then on Sunday morning they sit down or they stand up and they teach them. They pass them out to the people that God sends. Just like in most uh, uh, charities, they take in the money, they spread it out and they hand out things to the people that are in need for whatever charity that is. Nighttime snack is an example of that. Or excuse me, not nighttime snack. That's in Farmington. The backpack impact that goes on down here. It's very similar to nighttime snack in Farmington. But what they do is they take all the resources that come in, they divvy them out into backpacks, and then they hand those backpacks out on Friday evening to give to the kids. And so in the same way, Paul and Apollos, and we're going to find out Timothy, they're ministers of God, servants of Jesus Christ, and stewards of the household of God. They're the head of household. They take in the resources and they pass them out. So Paul, he tells them this. You've misunderstood the place of a leader in the church, of a pastor. Uh, They're really just servants of the Lord. So to pit them against each other is really in vain because they're all serving the same God. They're all working in conjunction. They're co-laborers. They're not battling against each other. So to have a division over who your Bible teacher is, is really moot because we're all in the same race together. We don't battle each other, but we're battling against the powers of darkness. And because the powers of darkness have gotten you to battle each other, you've stopped battling them. You're you're battling inside the church instead of taking ground in the world. And so Paul tells them this, and then he says, not only have you misunderstood the message, not only have you misunderstood the messenger, the point of the messenger, but you've misunderstood me personally. So Paul's going to get personal this week as we look at 1 Corinthians 4. He says in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. See, they were measuring the ministers that were over them according to a human standard. They were judging them based on what they thought a minister or a pastor should do. He said, don't judge them that way. Judge them according to what God says is their duty. They're servants and stewards. They're not there to pander to what you want. They're not there to pander to what the government wants or the community wants. They're there to serve the Lord and in doing so, to use their gift to build up and strengthen and feed the flock of God. He says, don't think beyond what is written. He says that because God has a standard for what God's ministers, his leaders, his, um, his, his ministers are supposed to be doing. And because he has a standard, that's the one that matters. But here's what happens. We have ideas of what success looks like. We have ideas of what um, a good minister should look like. And so you see them on TV. They're uber dressed up. They've got all the gold rings. And you go, hey... That guy must be successful as a pastor because look at all of his affluence. Look at all the stuff he has. Look at the car he drives. Look how big the church building is. Now, let me say that God's kingdom growing means that the church building has to get bigger. And sometimes we make them look nice because it reflects on the character of God. But at the same time, affluence or shiny stuff just for the sake of shiny stuff or to prove to other people that we're good or famous or doing well successfully, it's all in vain. It doesn't need to be there. God's not interested in the outward appearance. 
He's interested in the changes that are taking place in the hearts of the people that are going there. So, in verse 7, well, verse 6, he said, I don't want you to think in us, not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. He's, the word that he uses there for puffed up is like a bellows. You guys know what a bellows is? It's like, a, it's like two boards put together with a nozzle on the end and like almost like an accordion in between it. And you use it to fan the flame of a fire. But in this case, he's calling them bags of wind. He's saying, you guys don't need to be puffed up and prideful about who your teacher is and who that guy's teacher is. That's not the point. If you're puffed up because of who's teaching you, you have to recognize that that teacher only got what they got and you're being reached by them because God gave him the wisdom, because God gave him the word of God. And so he says there in verse 7, for who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? See, these Corinthian uh, believers, they, they were exercising the gifts of the Spirit, which is something that is supposed to happen in the church. They had wisdom. Uh, they were affluent. They had lots of stuff. And so he says there, he says, why are you puffed up and prideful about this? If you have anything good that's praiseworthy that you can use to bless the body of Christ, that God's given you to bless your family, why are you different from one another? Why do you have different gifts? Why are some of you able to teach? Some of you are really good at greeting. Some of you are really good at taking care of kids. If you're good at any of these things, it's only because God has gifted you. And he says that. Who makes you differ from one another? What, who gave you your differences? It would be like a peach tree and an apple tree if they could talk. Obviously, they can't. But if they were standing together and they go, look at the beautiful red fruit that I produce. And the other one says, well, look at the, look at the orange that I produce. Or look at the peach that I produce. My fruit's better than yours. Well, they each produce different fruit because that's what God made them to do. But it's all to the glory of God. And if it's not then it's misplaced, it's been perverted. It's used to build up one's self-image rather than glorify God. And any time that we use something God's given us to glorify ourselves instead of Him, we've made us God instead of Him. And it's sin. So that's what He's telling them. You guys have misplaced your priorities. You're trying to prove to everyone how great you are, but your life is not about you. It's about proving how great your God is. And so He tells them that. Because he loves them. I want to keep saying that. He's correcting them because he loves them. But because they are so hard-headed, he gets sarcastic with them. Sarcasm can be used to tear people down. And sarcasm can be used to tear people down when they're prideful. So the, let me tell you that most of the time when I'm sarcastic, it's not a good sarcasm. Paul's using what I would call sanctified sarcasm. Jesus did this as well when he was talking to the Pharisees. He used the uh, infamous phrase to them. He says, when he was correcting them, he'd say, have you not read? Well, that was sarcasm. He was saying that because they spent all their time reading the law. So when he would correct them about the way they interpreted the law, he'd go, didn't you read? Well, of course they did. Well, you didn't read right because here's what it actually says. This is what you've interpreted it to me. This is what it actually means. And Jesus being God himself could do that. He could correct us, right? He, he loves us enough 
to go, hey, you're in the wrong here. You need to change. You need to understand these things properly. And so in this same way, Paul does this. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then he says in verse eight, he says, you are already full. You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us, haven't you? He's saying, hey, you guys have already obtained to to the greatness of the glory of God. You've already reached there. You're in heaven already, right? I mean, you, you don't have anything else to learn. You guys ever talk to a teenager that's like that? Sometimes we can be like teenagers and we don't realize it. Somebody wants to teach us something and the first phrase out of our mouth, we, don't, we didn't even hear what they said. We haven't really thought about it or let it sink in yet. We go, I know. I know. When I was 15, my dad was trying to teach me a lot of stuff. And because I think he was realizing I was getting ready to fly the coop. And I needed to know a lot more than he felt like he had already taught me. So he would just always, and it was just like, I was tired of listening. And so I said, I know. And it would make him so furious because he knew that I didn't know. He knew that I hadn't obtained that knowledge yet. He knew that the minute he asked me the next day about that thing, I would respond and go, I don't know. But I had already said, I know. And we get that attitude. We kind of, we think, okay, I've arrived. Here I am. I'm I'm as good as it's ever going to get. And the Lord says, no, you still got more to learn. Be teachable. Humble yourself. Be softened to the fact that I love you enough to continue to teach you, but I can't teach you if you're not willing to listen. So he says this to them. He says, you're already full. You don't need anything. He says, you're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. But the question becomes, if, if you're already full, you've already obtained all the knowledge God wants to give you, then why can't you even do the simplest thing as to get along with each other? Because they weren't getting along. They were divided. They had disputes over ridiculous things. And Paul says, well, I guess you've already arrived. You've already learned it all. You don't need us anymore. He says, and I indeed could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. See, the Corinthians had an idea that we kind of do these days. We think that if we have all the stuff that we need physically, we've got a house over our heads, we've got a car to drive, we've got um, a, a job that's paying all our bills, then we've arrived. We don't need anything from God because all of our needs are met. But what we forget is we have a very spiritual need. And sometimes because we reach this place of the white picket fence or whatever your idea is of the, okay, I'm there, I've made it. What we don't realize is sometimes when we get all those things, we don't realize how much we need God. I thank the Lord now. I'm learning to thank the Lord when I'm discouraged and when things don't work out the way that they're supposed to because in those moments, it's when I grow as a Christian. that My roots go deeper because I'm not being satisfied by the things of this world. And I think the Lord wants us to be dissatisfied with the things of this world so we'll realize that Those aren't the goal. So that we'll realize that we need him. That man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by the word of God. That's where we get real satisfaction in life. And we get satisfaction, we get healthy, not just by eating the word of God, but by living it out and practicing it. And Paul's trying to shake them out of their sleepiness, out of their contentment. He says, indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think, verse 9, 
that God has displayed us, the apostles. He's now contrasting. You guys have already obtained, but isn't it interesting that we who have led you to the Lord, the apostles, God's put us last. He's made us men condemned to death. He says, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, that all creation looks at us and God's put us on display. We are fools for Christ's sake in the eyes of the world is the idea. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. You've got it all together. You already know it all. He says, we are, uh, we are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished and highly favored, but we are, we're being dishonored. Isn't it interesting, Corinthians, that you feel like to, to have it all together and to be walking with the Lord looks like you're successful, but we, to the eyes of the world, look like we're fools. We look weak. We don't look distinguished. We look defamed. They mock us. They look, hey, look, they, they say they're following God, but God's not blessing them. Things aren't going perfectly in their lives. I've been asked that before. I was in a relationship before Kelly and I got together. And the Lord snuffed it out. He let us completely fall on our faces and no longer like each other. And someone asked me, I won't tell you who it was because it doesn't matter. They said, if you're serving God, then why isn't so-and-so staying with you? Why isn't God blessing your relationship? And I said, I cannot say wholeheartedly that it's a bad thing that this relationship ends. I think that it's probably going to be for my good. I don't feel like that right now, but God's ripping something from my hands that I won't let go of, perhaps because he wants me to know him more. Perhaps because he knows this relationship won't glorify him. Maybe he wants to teach me something. I don't feel that way right now, but I know that God has my best interest in mind. Because if he was willing to die on the cross for me, he's also willing to correct me when I'm wrong. He's also willing to pull things out of my hands that will harm me. And so Paul's telling them that. Just because it looks right on the outside doesn't mean you're at where God wants you to be. Verse 11, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We don't have enough to eat. We don't have enough to drink. And we're poorly clothed. And we've been beaten. And we're homeless. Now, who else was like that? Who else didn't have enough to eat or drink? Who else was poorly clothed, had like the clothes on his back and that was it? Who else was beaten? Who else was homeless, didn't have a place to lay his head? Jesus Christ. So these Corinthians are going, we serve God. He's blessed our lives. We don't need to learn anything else. We're growing. And Paul's saying, well, what about your Savior? If that was the measurement of success in the Christian life, do you think you'd measure Jesus as a success? Not by the Corinthian standards, right? And so he tells them that. He says, I think you guys got your priorities. I think you're measuring things wrong. I think you're misunderstanding what the Christian life is all about. It's not always bells and whistles. It's not always having the newest thing. Sometimes it means we give up what we think we need in order to gain Christ. Verse 12, he says, we labor, working with our own hands. Now to the Corinthians who love Greek philosophy, the Greeks said, if you have to work with your own hands, you're a slave, you're nothing. But Paul says, we as your leaders, 
We work with our own hands. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. That's just where he's got us. He says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed or mocked, we entreat. We reach out to those who mock us. See, he's making a parallel to the Corinthians. I'm sure a lot of you guys in here have seen the movie Gladiator. You know the idea of the Colosseum. They had this big stadium, kind of like our our baseball stadiums. But in this stadium, the people would come in, Caesar would hand out bread, he would entertain them, and he would feed them. He would gain their favor. One of the ways that he would entertain them is he would take anybody who was condemned to death as a prisoner, and he would send them out to the middle, he'd give them swords and shields and say, battle to the death. And one of the things that they would do is before they would battle, they would walk up, they would look at Caesar, they would salute him, and they would say, we who are about to die, salute you. Because they wanted to be right with the king. They looked at Caesar like a god. And so in the same way, Paul, he knows that this image would be in their mind. He says, God, our king, loves us. He takes care of our needs, but to the rest of the world, who does not know him, he's made us a spectacle. That word means theatros, I think. And it's the idea of theater. We're entertainment to the world. But it's not an entertainment that makes them happy. It's an entertainment that kind of confuses them. Because to the world, we're dead. We're dying. We're condemned to death. We're battling things that we don't need to. And we're going to die by the end of it. We're going to lose our life. But Jesus said, he who would gain his life must first lose it, give it up in order to pick up his life in Christ. So though to the world it looks like we're condemned to death, to the Lord, we're battling for his victory. We've already received the victory. We're forgiven. We've been given salvation. But now we have this, there's this, this display of the love of God, the, the strength of God in our lives. And he says there, the way that we're displayed is not so much in our strengths, in our affluence, our comfort, but it's actually in our weakness. We're, being, we're displaying the love of God through how we handle trials. And he says that in verse 12, we labor working with our own hands. When we're reviled or spoken against, we don't fight back, but we bless. We bless the person who fights us. Well, to the world, that's a spectacle because it would be like the gladiator going out there, laying down his sword and shield and going, take me. I love you. Jesus loves me. And he loved me while I was still trying to hack away at him with the sword. But I love you. You can keep beating me if you want, but I love you because God first loved me. And when we do that, the world sees Jesus because nobody loves like that. I love that. The love of our Savior goes beyond. He says, being persecuted, we endure. We're able to to bear up under the, the, the pressures of persecution. We don't try to revile them. We don't try to mock them, but we endure it knowing that we're enduring in the same way that Jesus did when they beat him on the way to the cross. And being defamed or mocked, we entreat, we reach out to those who are against us in order that they might also know the love of the Father and obtain salvation. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. You guys think that you're where you need to be because you're comfortable, but we as the apostles the chosen ones that Jesus handpicked 
to deliver the gospel to the world, we're defamed. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. That means he wants to display his glory through us, these cracked vessels. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Because Paul writes here as well on the same topic. Philippians 3, verse 7. Here's what Paul says about all of his affluence, all of his stature in society before he came to know Christ. Once he came to know Christ, he said this in verse 7. He says, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ, I've given them up. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from following the law, which Paul used to do. He gave that up. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. We get to know the Lord most times, more times than not, through suffering because he can identify with suffering. He can identify with us suffering. Sometimes you're going through something, you're experiencing some trial, you didn't see it coming. Uh, maybe it's something in your family, maybe it's something in your job, maybe it's something that you just thought, this, this isn't supposed to work out like this. And you feel like you're suffering, and it happens. And you go, Lord, where are you in this? And he says, I can relate. I've been through this. I've suffered. I've been in your place. Maybe not your exact circumstance, but I was wounded. I was murdered in the house of my friends. The people I came to, I loved, and they misunderstood me. But we can identify with Christ in suffering. And he can, he's our Savior, and he can, he can comfort us because He has been in your spot before. Being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then he says this. The Corinthian church thinks they've already attained, remember? They don't need anything. They don't need to be taught anything new. They're already there. They've arrived. They're mature. And Paul says this to the Philippians as well. He says of himself, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Paul's a man just like the rest of us. He's still growing. He says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or to, to have grasped, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, the ways of the world and the way that the world looks at success, and reaching ahead, forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He'll correct you. He says, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. The upward calling of Christ is the humbling in this life. It just is. And if we realize that, when we're going through that, we can relate with one another. 
The Corinthian church, they were all puffed up in pride against one another. And Paul said, the thing that ought to bind you guys together is humility. Recognizing that you're nothing without the Lord. That should bind us together. Not one of us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to compared to our brother. We sing that song, give us clean hands, give us a pure heart. Let us not lift our souls or puff ourselves up against one another. And that's what was happening. They were all going, hey, look how great I am. Hey, look how great I am. Well, when you got two people that think that they individually are great, they're going to have, they're going to hit, they're going to butt heads. And so the Lord's saying, why are you thinking so highly of yourselves? I'm the only one that's high. You're all to be looking to me. So Paul says this, he tells them that. And, and then he tells them why he writes all these things. Because he's corrected them quite a bit. You know, somebody's just correcting you all the time. You're like, what are you here just to bum me out, beat me up? You know, a little uplifting message here, Paul. But Paul tells them, here's why I'm telling you this. Verse 14, back in 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not write these things to shame you. I'm not trying to press down on you so that you think that you're completely worthless. He says this, you know, you ever correct your kids so much that they start to cower every time they see you? I've done that. Not to my daughter, but to my, my other kid, my dog. You know, sometimes I'm just, I'm correcting them all the time. But I do it because I don't, I don't want them to get hit by a car. I don't want them to do something to destroy the house. I, I, I love my dog. Now, not like I love my kid. It's a bad example. But sometimes he walks around me cowering. And then I recognize it's probably because I, I might have been a little harsh with him lately. He loves me. And he's still right by my side, but his ears are all down. You know, he's not perked up anymore. What's wrong? He needs to know that I love him. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I don't write these things to shame you. I'm not trying to hinder you from growing. But as my beloved children, I'm warning you. I'm giving you caution. I'm admonishing you. Parents admonish their children not to bum them out, but to correct them because they love them. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers you got all kinds of people willing to give you all kinds of truth. But, but I'm like a father to you in the faith. He says, For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Brian and I were talking before service about the King James Version. We're like, man, we're so glad there's a new King James Version because we get all these begats. You know, I read the, I was telling him this, I'm going to use it again. I, I uh, <laughs> I said, man, if I read a Bible that says begatted, and I said, I'm begetting out of here. <laughs> he says, but I've begotten you again, according to the gospel. God used me in your salvation experience. I'm not your father. Don't call me father. But in a way, I feel responsible like a parent. And so I look at you, and I, I see your eyes, and I see the gleam, and then I see after you've grown some, you've kind of lost that gleam and you're missing the point and you're going off to other things like pride and, and self-seeking and self-centeredness and you're missing the abundant life that God has for you. And so I'm warning you, be careful. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. 
Now, he's not saying imitate me in everything I do. But Paul has examined his life and he's saying, as I imitate Christ, imitate me. Because we all as believers should have lives that are able to be imitated. Because whether you want people to follow you in all your ways or not, they're going to. And so he says that. He says, imitate me. For this reason, verse 17, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says, I'm not teaching these things just to you. I teach the same thing everywhere I go. And to prove it to you, I'm going to send Timothy. Because he's going to come and he's going to teach you. What you're going to find out is the things that I've taught him, they'll agree with the things I've taught you. And sometimes we need reminders. And so Paul's sending Timothy to them to remind them of the things they've already learned. Because we need reminded. We forget the fundamentals. I, I forgot the fundamentals yesterday. Um, I was riding my motorcycle going to Farmington. And as I was driving, I pulled up to the four-way right there next to Fort Davidson. I was making a right going to Farmington. And as I stopped there, I forgot my bag was unzipped. So I stopped, took my bag off, unzipped it, or zipped it, so I wouldn't lose my stuff. And then I got back on the road and took off. Well, in the meantime, this Jeep had went in front of me from the stoplight, or the stop sign. And as it took off, it kind of took off and then it stopped. And it was turning into the rustler. It was waiting on another car so it couldn't turn right in. Well, I didn't see the brake lights. I wasn't paying attention. I had gotten so used to riding my motorcycle that I wasn't paying attention to the fundamentals. And that can get you in trouble, right? So I looked down at my dash gauge and then I'm looking up and brake lights. And not just brake lights, but a stopped vehicle. What do I do? Well, fundamentals say you grab the brake and then you grab the front brake. I didn't have enough time because I wasn't paying attention because I was in my own mode. I almost hit the back of that car. And my back tire went, and I still was going probably 20 miles an hour because I just, I didn't have enough time to react. So I steered out of the way and just barely missed the driver's side mirror, went around him on the wrong side. He was turning in. So I got done. Of course, my stomach's all queasy. I just about ended myself. And the funny thing is though, I was just like, Lord, the only reason I didn't in that car, I didn't remember the fundamentals. You must have corrected my steering. Sometimes we forget the fundamentals. And the Lord, he's so gracious. He's so merciful. He says, I'm going to correct your steering even though you're not willing. And he did that. And he does that for us. And he's doing that for the Corinthian church through the pen of Paul. He said, you guys need to be corrected. I care about you. I'm graceful enough. They didn't want to listen to a word he said. They didn't. They didn't want to be corrected. He says, but I'm going to send Timothy to you. He's going to come in. He's going to remind you of the things I taught you. And by doing so, it will strengthen you. Because you need reminded. You need to go back to the basics. So then he says in verse 18, and we'll close, we'll end the chapter. He says, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, the same word, kind of like a bellows, full of hot air, got a big head on their shoulders. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. And he says this in verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, 
but it's in power. Shall I come to you with a rod? He says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Meaning the rod of correction. You want me to come with the whipping stick? Or do you want me to come in love in a spirit of gentleness? Someone who's been corrected can be dealt with in a spirit of gentleness. Someone who's been corrected that will not receive correction will be like the sheep who's gone astray and the shepherd takes the rod and whips him a little bit. Hey, what you're going toward is going to hurt you. And so Paul expresses that to them. He says, I will come to you shortly and I will know whether you're just saying things that you believe or whether you really believe them. They'll be shown in your life. I love that. Because those who are rejecting the counsel of the Lord, the fruit will show. But those who receive it, the fruit will show as well. There will be power there. God's not interested in what we say we believe. He's interested in what we walk out daily. And it doesn't save us, but it does prove that we're a child of God when we act like the Lord. And so the Corinthian church needed correction. And I think sometimes we need some correction. I think sometimes the Lord wants us to get our eyes off of what we think is success and look at what he thinks is success. And he says, we've been made a spectacle. We've been made a display of his. And sometimes that display means that we, are, uh, we don't have enough to eat. We don't have a place to live. We don't have clothes. Uh, we labor, working with our own hands. God's given that to us. That's how we glorify God. He says, uh, we revile. And how do you react when you're reviled? When you're cursed? When you're persecuted? Do you bless? Or do you fight back? Children of God, they don't fight back. They bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Do you endure when people persecute you? I'm not talking about for being goofy. I mean, for righteousness sake, for doing the right thing. How do you react? Being defamed, do you entreat? Do you still reach out to your enemies, hoping they'll come to know the Lord? And do you think yourself more highly than others in the body of Christ? Because if you do, that'll be shown as well. Paul writes this to them and he corrects them because he wants them to change because he knows they will truly experience abundant life and joy if they will live to please the Father and if they'll receive correction. Because I don't know about you guys, but at least at this point in my walk, nine years in, been reading the Bible, been going to Bible studies, been working with other Christians, and I still have a lot to learn. And there's not one Christian that doesn't still have a lot to learn. Because when we're done learning, the Lord's going to take us home. But until then, He's got us here for ourselves to learn, to be perfected, to be made holy and righteous, to be displayed to the world as how God changes someone from the inside out. But he's also got us here so that they can see that there's hope for them as well. So we should be those who carry that hope. And they won't see that if we disagree or if we're puffed up in pride. And so he wants us to be changed. Where are you at in this today? How much do you need to learn? What are the things that God's trying to teach you right now that maybe you've hardened yourself to? He's not telling these things to you to shame you. If someone tells you something, gives you some scripture, wants to steer you in a different direction, do you receive it or do you go, that's not for me? Because sometimes the Lord gives us things to correct us, not to defame you, not to shame you, but so that you can be strengthened. How are you at receiving it? How, how often do you subject yourself to someone teaching you something from the word? Do you apply it to your life or do you hear it and go, so-and-so needs to hear that? 
I'm guilty of that. So let's, this week, let's take some time and see what the Lord would teach us. And oh, what a difference it would make in the church if we all would subject, subject ourselves to that kind of just lifelong learning. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the heart of Paul expressed in this letter. I thank you for his boldness to correct this, these problems that are going on. Next week, he's going to have to deal with some very intimate, personal problems that affect the church. Correcting people who are in outward sin. And it's awkward. Uh, but Lord, I thank you for giving him boldness to do so. Because there are times where we still have to do that. But I thank you also for him dealing with the, not just the symptoms, but the source of their pride. Lord, give us a willingness. Open our ears. Open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see the ways that we still need to be changed. Even though we're saved and we're going to heaven, Lord, we still need you. We need you to perfect us. We need you to grow us. We need to go to maturity so that we can fight the battles that we're supposed to fight and uh, lay down our gloves in the battles we're supposed to give up. And Lord, so that you can be displayed to the world through our humility. Lord, grow your church. Mature us. Make us faithful. Help us to be like Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us with a Father's heart. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.